When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. Every Friday during the World Cup, we're going to bring you a podcast from our friends at the soccer magazine Howler. They'll have analysis of the games news from outside the stadiums in Brazil, and reports from a writer embedded with the U.S. national team. We hope you enjoy this special podcast extra, and I'll now pass the mic to George Qureshi, the founder and editor of Howler. Take it away, George. Hello and welcome to Dummy, a twice-weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler Magazine. My name is George Crashy. I am the editor of Howler Magazine and joining me in the studio, our little tiny cramped studio here in Miami, is Danny Carbassian, who to date, to date, is the only member of this podcast who has scored a goal for Arsenal. Hi, Danny. Hey, George. Thanks for having me. In Bristol, England, not Connecticut, David Goldblatt is the author of The Ball is Round and Fuji Ball Nation, both of which are incredibly smart books. David, hello. Hi. I've totally set you up for failure now with, with that introduction. We are recording this minutes after Brazil 
beat Croatia. I guess I should give you a spoiler alert, but if let's be honest, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what happened in the World Cup. And we will be doing this twice a week through the World Cup, publishing on Tuesdays and Fridays. So let's get into uh, let's get into it. As I said, we're recording this pretty soon after Brazil beat Croatia, and I think we have a lot to talk about in terms of that game, but also a lot of stuff that's going on in Brazil outside of the stadiums. I want to start maybe by talking about the game, though. We all watched together. D- Danny came and watched the game with me. I think we were all surprised that Croatia jumped out ahead, but you said something interesting. You said that you thought the game was better because because Croatia jumped ahead. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I think everybody expected Brazil to kind of jump out and, and win this game and win the group. I think I saw somewhere where 99% of the people in the world, I think, think Brazil will win the group. And having Croatia take the lead early made it far more interesting, I think, for, for the game itself and just for the Brazil as well. I think they've realized today that, you know, having the World Cup in their in their own country and, and the group that they have, I don't think it's going to be, I guess, as easy as they, they thought it could be. And having Croatia jump out and put them on their back foot early made Brazil have to come out and play. David, you were watching and you said this is your first time sitting down on the couch, so I'm assuming <laughs> you were you were pretty active during the game. Was it Was it that exciting? I got... I sure got off the couch when uh, the own goal went in and I punched the air for every op-ed writer in the world. I mean, you really couldn't have asked for a better metaphor to open uh, open the tournament with. So I kind of liked that. And then the game sort of ebbed and flowed and I found myself actually noticing how quiet the crowd was sometimes. I mean, you know, when they sang the national anthem... That was powerful and loud. But there were long periods of the game where they were quiescent at best. You said earlier that, that Brazilian authorities had outlawed instruments from, from the stadiums this time, which I think was pretty noticeable, right? That's right. Well, I mean, it's a, that's a FIFA issue, actually, rather than the Brazilian government cooking that one up. And that's a response, an overreaction to the whole Vuvuzela experience in 2010. I think it was also the kind of characters that were there. I mean... It's hard to do kind of instant demography, but it looked like 95 to 99% white in that audience. And we know that you needed a lot of money to get in there. You know, you just wonder how regular attenders at football a lot of the crowd were and how familiar with the culture of chanting and singing and shouting. There was a moment when I noticed it was really quiet, and I think I said something like, "You can tell the tickets were expensive because <laughs> it's so it's so quiet in there." Danny, you as a former player. You know, Brazil came out, they were super pumped. You saw them after the uh, the national anthems. They were just sort of like, just really into it. What does that do for them? I mean, they, they go down a goal. The, the crowd is not all that into it. How do you think that affects them? Well, I think they certainly have nerves going into a game like this. You know, as I said, everybody expects them to go through, which does put a little bit more pressure on them uh, in this situation. Brazil's obviously one of the biggest footballing countries in the world and in a a country where the fans expect results. Having the World Cup back in in their hometown now, they're definitely going to be expecting them to lift the trophy by the end of the tournament. A point you guys made, you know, I was actually interested when when the second half did start. Brazil ended the first half quite well and the crowd seemed to be getting behind them quite well. And then when the second half started, it was just so dead, which I thought was quite strange considering how they ended the first half. Well, one thing that that struck me about this game, taking it to the field, is is that Brazil seemed to be wanting to play on the counterattack than to build attacks. A lot of the a lot of their chances it felt like came from Croatia losing the ball in, in bad areas. Someone you know, maybe an ill advised dribble or, you know, some some pressure from a Brazilian player. I was struck by the fact that it often seemed there there was no central midfield it felt like for Brazil. I, maybe I'm maybe No, I'm I didn't I didn't there. see that. 
I didn't see that. I mean, when they broke with Oscar occasionally, they look good. But there's no one in the middle, you know, who's kind of... There's no playmaker in this team, is there? That's not how they work. I agree for sure. I mean, you could see... I, I thought Oscar would probably play kind of more centrally throughout. And more often than not, him and Hulk were out wide. And Neymar was kind of just drifting everywhere. And... I think that also confused Croatia just a bit as well because Hulk and Oscar did continue to to switch sides. But Croatia struggled a little bit because their midfield is so based on keeping the ball and and passing the ball in quick areas. And Modric, Rakitic, and and Kovacic as well. Portions of the game where they did struggle was when they weren't able to get the ball down and keep it as well as they would have liked. And um, yeah, as you said, Brazil... They, they don't have a playmaker, but they, they do have that pace and they do have the creativity. When they do get the ball, they can still punish the opposition. Let's talk about the referee, because for all of this, you know, I mean, Croatia should have had an equaliser and Brazil got the softest penalty we'll perhaps ever see. Definitely the softest penalty of the tournament so far. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, he, he just went down. Um, clearly not, in my opinion, a penalty, which really was a shame because Croatia put up such a good a good first half. I mean, they went ahead. What, what more can you ask? Yeah, no, absolutely. They went out there and they weren't they weren't ruffled by it. They played within their limits. I thought they were great and they were robbed really at that point because once they got the penalty, the dynamic of the game changes, and they had their chance and. There was no way Olic was fouling Julio Cesar. It, it just seemed a ridiculous call to me. I don't know how the referee could have made it. That was too bad. I think when, when Brazil scored the, the third goal, Oscar's goal, my first reaction was, oh, man, what a soft, another soft goal. This, you know, really, the keeper made a mistake. But then I watched the replay. What I saw was his toe poke was kind of genius, right? Because I was saying to Danny, it was not in stride. It was not, if you were just watching his form, the goalkeeper would not have said, oh, he's shooting now. Yeah, I think the 3-1 scoreline is really unfair on Croatia, especially at the end because they were they were kind of pushing and getting their numbers up and they got done on the counter. But I think while Neymar is going to probably get a lot of the plaudits here because he scored twice and is essentially the jewel of this Brazil team in this World Cup, I think Oscar actually did deserve the goal and, and had a great game as well and as more of like a supporting cast for Neymar. He's the guy that was working hard in the midfield and actually made several big tackles to, to stop those counterattacks where Rakitic and Modric can, can really hurt teams. And then, of course, he was rewarded at the end with his goal. Yeah, well, speaking of teams that start started well and then sort of had disastrous endings, the Doves that were released pregame, apparently two of them didn't even make it out of the stadium. They, they hit parts of the structure and just died, just fell back into the the stands. The third apparently made it into the press box from what I from what I read. I actually had visions of Sepp Blatter sort of going Elmer Fudd on them and getting out his shotgun, but there is past form for this, of course, at sporting mega events. Back in eighty eight in uh, the Seoul Olympics when uh, a whole bunch of the pigeons landed on top of the Olympic flame before it was lit. And then they lit it, and it was like 150 of them go up barbecue styly. <laughs> oh That's why these days they uh, they light the torch first, and then they let the pigeons out. So, David, you really put in some time this these last two days and watched, I think, all of the FIFA Congress. You binge-watched Sepp Blatter. For my sins, I watched it. But you've got to keep an eye on these people. And it's it's incredibly instructive, you know, watching how they actually operate in the flesh. So I want to know, what did you learn from, like, sort of a Clockwork Orange-style <laughs> marathon viewing session? Well, the first thing I learned 
is that contrary to what most people think, Sepp Blatter is loved and respected in much of the football world. And we, I think, you know, view these things from a North American, from a European perspective. But it was so telling on the first night of the Congress when the orders of merit were being handed out to different people around the world. And you can see in Africa, in Central America, in key bits of Asia, Blatter can do no wrong. And that was instructive. And in fact, he started dancing at one point. He really showed us a few moves. He dropped his shoulder. He swung his hand out. He clicked his fingers. I thought it was going to be like Tom Jones doing It's Not Unusual to Be Loved by Someone. Um, and there was a really good band. The orchestra, they had played some terrific music. And I could actually see that the guy leading the band was having to say to them, look, you've got to play another, you've got to go round another time with that jingle because the members of the executive committee are either so infirm or elderly that getting up onto the stage to join Blatter was taking a lot longer than the musical, the music they had prepared. <laughs> so that was the fun and games on day one and then serious business on day two. Blatter is a complete maestro of politics. Because despite the madness going on around him, despite the declining status of FIFA, despite the accusations of corruption over Qatar 2022, he mobilised his forces. And on the key, I mean, much of the day was taken up with the most insufferably tedious and boring bureaucracy. But on the key issue of reform about whether there's going to be term limits for the FIFA president and for the executive committee and whether there are going to be age limits on both of those issues, if either of them had been passed by the Congress, Blatter would not have been able to stand uh, for a fifth term as president uh, next year. And on both of those issues, they were soundly thrown out. And you could see it was the only moment when people came up to the stage, a Sri Lankan, the president of the Haitian Federation, uh, somebody from Pakistan, uh, a Congolese dude, and they all came up and sang a eulogy to Blatter and, uh, and the vote was thrown out. And then... The quid pro quo, of course, for this is that during the finance section of the Congress, uh, it was announced that there's going to be a success premium paid. Wouldn't you like a success premium paid to you? I know I'd like one of those. And in this case, FIFA's been making so much money, even compared to the uh, the projections that it set itself, that there is going to be uh, an extra $200 million distributed to the football associations of the world. So that's $750,000 coming to the president of a football federation near you. And uh, Blatter actually announced it three times just to get the message home. So he's got that thing sewn up. David, I want to make a connection between what you said at first, you know, that Sepp Blatter is beloved, you know, around the world and what you've just been describing, because Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and what was it, Haiti? Those are not soccer capitals of the world. And yet they were playing, you know, kind of a prominent role in, in these festivities. Sure. Right? The deal is that it's one country, one vote, right? 209 members of Congress. Everyone's got the same vote. Argentina, China, American, you know, American Samoa. Everyone's equal in this context. And this was a strategy by what Havelange, right? Before Blatter to sort of cement his power. Base. Oh, yeah. Blatter learnt from the master. 
I mean, Congress has always taken this form. It's always been one country, one vote. But Havelange understood how to, how to make it operate. He understood, you know, it's easier and cheaper to influence, you know, a bunch of small places than to have to uh, have to deal with the already wealthy and powerful. And that's how he built the coalition that got him elected. And that's what kept him in for 24 years. So another competition between the wealthy and powerful and the disaffected, the the protests that have been going on in Brazil, there was a, a threatened airport strike in Rio de Janeiro that was called off at the last minute because the courts ruled that they, they had to go to work. But in Sao Paulo, there was there were three, I believe, separate incidents. Now, I want to talk about that first. I want to sort of, you know, one of the great things about having Danny on the podcast is that we have sort of a player's perspective. And one thing that I think a lot of people are wondering is, you know, are the players affected by this in any way? I I have to assume that they're in some kind of cocoon, some, you know, media silent, you know, bubble. I guess maybe that's changing because of Twitter. But what are they what are they experiencing? And, and you know, what does a player see as his responsibility to a country like Brazil if, if he's just there for a, a, you know, a 21 day tournament or, or however long? Yeah, I mean, I think the the Certainly, the players' experiences are going to be far different from everybody else that's down there uh, visiting, and, and it's because they are, as you said, they are in a cocoon to an extent. They they're in the hotel, they go to train, they come back to the hotel, they'll go to eat, they'll come back to the hotel, and then they go play the games. You know, so what they actually get to see of of the country is is very limited in a sense. And um, I think before the tournament started, actually, you saw on social media some teams were taking the players to favelas and taking them to various areas where they could see more of the cultural aspect of the country. But once the tournament starts, it's all about you know rest, recovery, training, and then getting ready for the next game, basically. There was a very funny comment on Twitter. England went to visit an orphanage, and then there was a quote. It was, you know, it was just so heartbreaking to see the hopelessness in their eyes, said six-year-old Diego... <laughs> <laughs> if I can awesome. uh, just say it's a great gag, but it did the rounds in 2010 about okay, England. Okay. Only they were visiting townships. Well, it's, it's still true, right? Oh, yeah, it's still true then <laughs> as it was, as it ever has been. Okay, so, but David, what, what's going on down there? I mean, you know, we're going to speak in a little while to Luke O'Brien, one of our one of our writers who writes for Howler and Slate, about you know this morning he was he was caught up in one of those protests and, and actually got hit by a tear gas bomb. What have you been hearing? Well, I mean, I'm hearing and I'm reading online. I mean, I think there have been protests also in Rio, in Porto Alegre, and in Belo Horizonte. And uh, we know particularly about the Rio protests in Britain because the uh, ITV television studio from which, uh, you know, the kind of post-match discussions were being broadcast has a glass-plated window that looks out onto Copacabana Beach. And while they were talking, they were stoned. And you can see the kind of marks from the stones in the um, in the windows. And there was a huge gathering of protesters. They were discussing the game. And in the background, you could see a range of police lights twinkling. So Rio has, um, has seen protests. The three in Sao Paulo, I get confused over the day, to tell you the truth. There's been a couple of tube stations and one nearer the centre of town. And my sense is that the police are going in very hard, very quickly with all of their lovely new kit that has had $900 million or whatever it is spent on it uh, and have gone in very rough. And there have certainly been a couple of injuries of journalists have been appearing on Twitter in Belo Horizonte and in, in Sao Paulo. 
Let's take a break here. And when we come back, we will hear from Luke O'Brien, who is down in Sao Paulo. And I spoke to him earlier. He was in one of those protests. So I'm joined by Luke O'Brien. Luke, you wrote me an email this morning and you said, I think I found the protests. What exactly happened? I found a protest. Turns out there are three of them in the city, but I went to the largest one and it was at a subway station a few stops away from the stadium. What it was essentially was a strike by these metro workers, these subway workers, probably been reading about and it's been going on for the past week. And that was contained, it was peaceful, they were banging on the drums, flags, hundreds of people just outside of the Metro workers' headquarters. And they had initially wanted to march on the stadium, but they decided to stay put. There were riot police all over the place, I mean, everywhere, you know, with the whole, the shields and the batons and the shotguns. And then what happened is a bunch of these, I believe they were black bloc members, and they've been kind of agitating here and sort of attaching themselves to some of the protests you know they have anarchist tendencies and they're just coming to stir things up so you know down one street you've got these metro workers peacefully protesting the cops really were, were kind of leaving them alone and then i would say 30 40 of these black block guys decided it was time to turn up the volume and they started these trash fires in the streets they started ripping down street signs and just really provoking the police who then retaliated in the way that the police have been retaliating here which is not not gently and they fired all kinds of tear gas canisters there were rubber bullets flying around and it looked kind of like a war scene so let me, let's, uh, and, let's back up for a second you are in sao paulo you're at you're in the media center at the game right now we're talking about 10 15 minutes before the game starts right how long ago was this this was this morning. We, we got to the protest area around 11 o'clock, I would say, this morning, 10.30, 11. And it, it all happened right around noon. And it seemed like a fairly nice area of, of, of Sao Paulo. And it was just total pandemonium and chaos for about an hour. I mean, uh, dozens and dozens of tear gas canisters going off. Uh, some journalist, an AP photographer, his name is Rodrigo Abide. Uh, I think he's from Argentina. He got like shrapnel in his leg. His leg was all bloody. People are running around through the smoke and, you know, then it stopped. It died down after about an hour and a half, two hours of this. And the police backed off and then the black block guys kind of vanished. And meanwhile, the strike, the legitimate strike that was happening where I think these people were trying to get, you know, they're asking for higher wages. They had to clear out in the midst of all this. What I found interesting was there are these big towers, sort of luxury apartments you hadn't seen too many Brazilian flags out in the city up until today. Same thing in, in Rio. People have only now started to come around to support their team. There's sort of this, I guess, love-hate relationship going on right now with the team because it's kind of been attached to what FIFA is doing here and people don't like FIFA. But now you're starting to see some of the Brazilian pride come out. Of course, it's entirely in conflict with what these black bloc guys are doing. Right. So. You've got these people coming out on their verandas in these luxury apartment buildings, waving their Brazilian flags, yelling at the protesters who are battling with the cops, and the protesters are yelling back at them. And I just want to be clear, though, there, there are several groups of protesters. Right. You know, what I felt, I mean, who am I to say, but there are some people who are have, trying to have a legitimate strike 
an illegitimate protest, and then there were some of these anarchist types who came and, and just were in, intentionally trying to provoke some sort of conflict. What was the reaction so, among the what you call the legitimate protesters, the people who were there being peaceful, banging the drums, you know, just trying to sort of make their voices heard? What was their reaction when the black bloc fellas showed up and started wreaking havoc? Well, it was interesting because the black bloc guys were standing around. You could see them before any of this started happening. They're just standing there, you know, they wear bandanas and dress in all black, and the protesters were down one street. The black bloc guys weren't mingling with them, but they were no more than 100 meters away or so, so it was obvious that they were there to the protesters, and it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of interaction between the two groups. And then after, it was almost like a mini riot started I couldn't tell. I mean, I got I, I didn't see what happened to the strikers. There's smoke everywhere, and and they had cleared out by the time I got back to this intersection where you know all the all the tear gas canisters were were flying around. So what is it like really to be what is it like to be hit with tear gas? Well, I think different people have different reactions to it. I didn't seem to be bothered by it so much <laughs> as much as I thought I would be. Uh, it's it's peppery. I'll tell you that it's like a. It's, 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 I guess, really concentrated pepper spray. And, uh, you know, you get a burning sensation in your, in your throat and your mouth. I start to water. I did get a big gust of, of, of tear gas blown into my face at one point. And, uh, then you do, you do feel it then. But, uh, I was more, I was more concerned about the rubber bullets flying around. I didn't have a helmet or anything. A lot of people were wearing helmets and gas masks. And, you know, we didn't think it was going to, we did not think it was going to be this big a deal. We went down there assuming that there would only be a couple hundred people because there really have been no protests at all since I've been here. I've been here almost a week now and nothing at all. And I'd heard that people were kind of saving up for the for the opening match, but we'll see going forward if this if this keeps happening. I, I, I tend to doubt it because, you know, the agitators really it was a small group of them. It was these black bloc guys, I believe, and, you know, the strikers just cleared out. So Right. Okay, so Luke O'Brien, I know you got to get into the game. Uh, you are down in Brazil covering the tournament and everything else for Slate and for Howler. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. That was uh, Luke O'Brien down in Sao Paulo. Really interesting uh, experience today. I hope hope he doesn't get any shrapnel in his legs. Uh, Now we're going to throw it to Alexander Abnos, who is an editor for Howler, but he is embedded for the World Cup with the U.S. national team. He's blogging for them at ussoccer.com, and he'll be joining us every episode with a little, I don't know, camp diary, I guess you could call it. Here's Alex. Hey, this is Alex Abnos coming to you from Sao Paulo, Brazil. I just came back from covering the World Cup's opening match. It was a very eventful game, uh, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. Um, I've been in camp the last couple weeks with the U.S. national team, and uh, the thing that stood out to me in these past two weeks has been just how much Ghana has been on the mind of the coaches and players. You know, you ask a question about Portugal and Germany, and they might say a few things about, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo or what they're expecting or how organized the Germans are. But then they'll very quickly say, you know what, that's great, but our focus right now is on Ghana. And it's understandable in some way that that would be the case. Ghana is in some ways the weakest team in the group, and getting a good result there, especially in the first game, is very, very important. But at the same time, I'm a little surprised. I mean, Portugal and Germany are very, very good teams, and you would think that even with a win against Ghana, the U.S. would need to get at least a point against one of them. Uh, the other big news out of camp is the cancellation of the U.S.'s uh, closed-door friendly against Belgium. Um, that friendly, obviously nobody was going to see it. It was behind closed doors. doesn't matter in the standings at all. But it was going to be a really good final test for the U.S. Belgium's a quality team with really, really, really good players. 
and players that can test the U.S. in uh, in interesting ways. And even beyond that, you know, these guys are at a World Cup. They see the games going on now. They can feel the kind of energy of the tournament, and they've been playing against playing against each other for a week now. If you're a professional player. At this point, you just want to play games and you want to get into the rhythm. The Belgium opportunity was a good chance to do that. Um, however, now that's gone. So, you know, we'll see how that affects the team against Ghana. I don't think it'll affect them much, but you never know. It's an unpredictable tournament. I'll be coming back with you with regular reports from U.S. National Team Camp. This is Alex Abnos uh, saying goodbye from Brazil. Hope you all are doing well back in the States. up here but i want to i want to do something we're going to call tiki taco where we each sort of discuss something that we really liked from the world of soccer in the past in the past week or so david i know you are a keen observer of soccer culture and uh and everything else what do you what do you have that you want to talk about today i got one really silly little thing on one big thing and my really silly little thing is the id tags that everybody has to have for the world cup i think they're getting bigger I think they're getting actually, they're twice the size they were at the last World Cup. Well, the Croat coach, I can't remember his name. It was like he was wearing armor. I mean, literally like a breastplate over his jumper. So I'm just interested. Are they getting bigger? Are they a defensive, uh, a defensive tool? And the other thing was, well, you hang on. You might be onto something because, because it could be, uh, are we sure it's not a Kevlar, uh, a, a Kevlar pass that gets you onto the field? Yeah, no. It doubles as a as a shield. Yeah, no, and if you're really good, you get one of the new helmets bought for the Brazilian riot police, which, according to their own <laughs> press statements, are designed to look like Darth Vader. Well, that's saying something. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, that's, <laughs> Danny, I don't know how you're going to beat that, but let's, let's give it a shot. What's <laughs> your tiki talker? Um, I'm going to stick to the technical side of the game. Uh, I read an article from Simon Evans yesterday, actually, where he talks about how everybody these days is analyzing formations in the game. It's all about Christmas trees, 4-4-2s, inverted midfielders, diamonds, all this. And it seems as if every single day a new article comes out uh, assessing a formation or a player. And he's essentially written an article saying, like, why don't we just watch the World Cup and enjoy it for what it's worth? Which is uh, quite refreshing, actually, even from my point of view as a guy who watches the game from kind of a completely different standpoint in terms of what I'm looking for. So I, I failed to introduce you properly at the beginning of the show because you you were you're a former player. Mm-hmm. You played for Arsenal, Burnley. You you know you you had injuries that forced you out, and you now scout for Arsenal. Mm-hmm. And so you you spend a lot of time watching the game with you know very very keen sense of detail when it comes to players and formations and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why reading that article was actually uh, made me smile a bit because at times I do miss just watching a game for what it's worth you know watching for example Spain Holland tomorrow that's a huge game just let's sit back watch it and enjoy the World Cup for what it's worth and not sit there and talk about if we're playing a false nine or having an inverted winger and having a Christmas tree formation or something you know sometimes you just want to sit back and enjoy the game as you did when you were a kid well, we'll make sure you miss the, the episode when Michael Cox comes on to talk about uh, his chalkboards and everything, if we can get him. Um, okay, so my Tiki Taka is is I want to do a little bit of advertising for the website that I'm working on during the day. You know, I do Howler now during the night this summer. Uh, I was hired to come down to Miami and launch a website for a TV channel called Fusion. 
it's owned by ABC and Univision. It's very exciting. And we just launched a World Cup site. The great thing is that with Howler, I hardly have a budget. And when, when I come here, they have a budget. And I get to pay some of the writers who do stuff for Howler for next to nothing. Today, we published something by one of my favorite people to hang out with and talk soccer with. His name is Alan Black. He's a Scot, but he's lived in San Francisco for a a long time, I want to say 30 years, he's married to an American. He wrote a completely awesome soccer addict's 12-step guide to surviving the World Cup. And it's just so charming. And I, I wasn't, to be honest, all that familiar with the 12 steps. It's a pretty famous thing. Uh, but I had to, as I was editing it, I had to go through and actually look at the 12 steps to make sure we were really mirroring them when it came to soccer. But he has some some great ones. Number four, make a fearless moral inventory. It's okay to love Luis Suarez. Uh, number, number five, admit to Maradona, to yourself, and to Bob Lee the exact nature of your wrongs. The World Cup will cause suffering, but you'll still watch. Number seven, Humbly ask him to remove your doubts about Chris Wondolowski. Um, you know, it's just it's just really fantastic. You can read it at soccer.fusion.net. Uh, there's a lot of other great stuff, including Simon Evans, who who wrote a piece for us about uh, an experience he had with the Croatian national team and their fans back in the 98 World Cup that he was asked not to write about by the players. Uh, and he feels that the statute of limitations is finally passed and he was able to write about it. Um, and it's, it's great. So uh, that's my Tiki Talk. Guys... This was a, I think, a semi-successful first edition of the Dummy World Cup Special Edition podcast. Probably not enough to get us a, a, a success bonus like Sepp Ladder will be receiving, but we, we can always dream uh, that you know some of that two hundred million dollars could maybe funnel its way into into our pockets. We'll probably be asked to keep that a secret if, if it ever happens. I want to thank you guys for coming on, Danny Carbassian and David Goldblatt. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That does it for today's episode of Dummy. I want to thank Luke O'Brien for coming on and telling us about his experience getting tear gassed. Hopefully it doesn't happen again, although he is writing a story for us, so he does need to stay pretty close to the action. Our esteemed experts, David Goldblatt and Danny Carbassian, who will be with us all summer. Uh, I want to thank Slate for being such generous hosts. Mr. Brian Kim for the killer music. Our production team, Matthew Nelson and Ryan Katniz, Kira Deppenbrock and Milena Barajas for all their work behind the scenes. Matthew is actually, he boarded a flight for Rio today. He will be doing a special Howler Radio down there. He's going to the Argentina-Bosnia game, so stay tuned for that. The Howler Singers, led by Lindsay Elliott, they are part of a, a, an actually legit choral ensemble called Ghost Light in New York City. If you're ever there, check them out. They did our great theme tune at the beginning. Most of all, I want to thank the listeners. Um, without you, we wouldn't be doing this. Uh, and I hope you'll tune in again. We're going to be publishing this podcast every Tuesday and every Friday. On Tuesdays, it will be in our own feed. That's Howler Radio if you want to search in iTunes or just go to howlermagazine.com slash radio. If you're not following us on Twitter, you should be. It's at what a howler. Uh, my name is George Qureshi. We will be back on Tuesday to talk all about USA Ghana, unless we decide to just take the day off, <laughs> depending on the result. But we will be back, I promise, with more Dummy. Until then, happy World Cup, and thank you for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.